You're listening to ICCYG Youth Group Messages with me, Matt Jones. Hi guys, uh, glad you joined me. Uh, this next message is going to be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 10. Uh, this is going to be the second part of the series that we talked about, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. Okay, yeah, so everybody should be in First Thessalonians right now, with your little note sheets handy, right, so that you can take notes. Everybody got a pen and stuff, pencil, all right, we're good to go. So, if you guys can remember from last week, uh, uh, when we did our introduction, we went through a lot of, uh, like, context, right? Went through a lot of... Uh, why Paul wrote First Thessalonians, what his purpose was in writing it, all the situations that kind of led up to him writing First Thessalonians. Uh, a lot of that stuff's going to play a part tonight. Um, but if you weren't here last week, that's okay, because uh, you know, I'll recap. So let's read the passage. Uh, John, do you want to start since you're front and center with verse 2, and then we'll go to uh, Jesse, and then we'll just go down this way. How's that sound? We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mentions of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and all power. Verse 4, sorry. is Paul expressing through all this passage? Starts with a t- yeah, thankfulness. He's he's super thankful when he's writing this first chapter of First Thessalonians. Do you guys remember from last week why why he's so thankful? He's thankful when he's writing the whole book, but like why 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 was he thankful? Like why? If we look through this, like, you know, we can remember from last week. Why is he so thankful? The Thessalonians are following God. Right. The Thessalonians are following God. If you remember, um, Paul, you know, started the church in Thessalonica. He was, you know, showing evidence and giving uh, evidence to the Thessalonians um, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. They believed. A lot of people were saved, but the Jews all got mad at him, right? And so they, uh, they formed a mob and kicked him out. So he wasn't there very long. He wasn't in Thessalonica very long to kind of disciple all these new Christians and, and uh, bring them up in the faith. Um, so Paul uh, sent Timothy, right, to see how the Thessalonians were doing. Um, he went to go visit them and encourage them and help them out in any way that he could. So when Timothy came back, he came with awesome news, wonderful news, um, and this wonderful news is that Paul was so thankful about in these verse, first ten verses. You know, the 
Thessalonians are doing great. They're, they didn't fall away from the faith. Uh, they endured some persecution, but yet they persevered through it. And we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, so it's, it's encouraging to Paul what Timothy says when he gets back. So this passage uh, can be divided into three parts, which I did. And they all have to do with Paul's thanksgiving. And we'll look at each of these three parts in depth as we get to them. So as we get to them, uh, we will fill out our little handouts. So in the first little point up here, we have thanksgiving for their salvation. So that's, that's in verses uh, 2 through 5. So that's the first little blank in your handouts. Paul's thanksgiving for their salvation. So the first thing that Paul is talking about is thankfulness for their proven salvation. So everybody look with me at uh, at verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy give thanks to God all the time for them in their prayers. Paul knew... Now remember also that whenever he says we, you know, Paul's saying we, he's talking about himself and his two companions, Silvanus and Timothy, because they were in in full full agreement with everything that Paul was uh, writing. So he's writing it for all three of them, even though Paul was the one who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, right, when he wrote this. Anyway, Paul knew that they were... There was only uh, two, two ways for the Thessalonians to go in their new faith. They could either get closer to God or farther away from God. Uh, Paul had been, may have been worried that the Thessalonians' hearts were one of those bad soils from Matthew 13. So everybody turn with me over to Matthew 13. We'll talk about these, uh, these soils. And one of, uh, possibly one of Paul's fears regarding the Thessalonians. Matthew 13, yeah. And I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and read this just so that and then as you guys are falling asleep I'll make you guys read some more later. But I'll read this one just for the sake of time. Is everybody there? We're starting in verse eighteen. Matthew thirteen eighteen, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed. Some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But because they had no depth of soil, uh, well, because they had no depth of soil, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what, you know, Paul, uh, Jesus gave these parables. Yeah? We absolutely did. But not everybody here was at base camp, so... Um, so Jesus gave these parables as stories. He gave them for two reasons. One was to help his uh, disciples understand them, understand the truths better. Uh, if they understood the, the, the simple story that went along with these truths, they could understand the truths better and for a longer period of time. Um, the second reason for the parables was to hide the truth from those who did not have ears to hear. Uh, because the more truth people have and the more truth they reject, the greater their judgment is going to be if they ultimately reject Christ forever, right? Uh, the Pharisees that he was talking to, uh, they, they committed what's called the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin, which means that they knew who Jesus was. They understood completely who Jesus was, the Son of God, uh, but yet they still rejected Him and they were planning to destroy Him. Now... That's the unforgivable sin because they they're they're to a point in their uh, sin that they, they they couldn't go back, like they they had crossed the line and they they just couldn't go back. It's not I mean they wouldn't go back. That's the unforgivable sin. Like we can't say that you know 
any of you guys or somebody else committed the unforgivable sin because we just don't know. We don't know their hearts. You know, Jesus could change their hearts at any time. But uh, these guys knew. I mean, Jesus knew that, that the Pharisees had committed the unforgivable sin. So he started teaching in parables in order to protect them from greater judgment. The more truth that they had, the more truth that they uh, rejected, the, the worse their punishment was going to be. So, he's saying the sower went out to sow. So he's, he's talking about a guy with you know, a big old bag of seeds and he's casting it out, right? He's, he's just letting the seed kind of go wherever, wherever it's, it's going to go. Some, saw, some fell beside the road. This is the super hard, packed-in road, right? The seed fell on this, this road, but it had no soil, and immediately uh, the birds came and ate up all the seeds. Others fell on the rocky places where it didn't have much soil. So what he's talking about rocky places is uh, over in the Middle East, in places like this, um, there was some ground that looked awesome for planting. Like this, the soil might be uh, you know, dark and loamy. Uh, it looked great. But just like this far below the surface, there'd be this huge rock that you didn't feel it when you plowed it. But it was shallow enough that whenever this, the roots came up, they couldn't go down into the groundwater. They couldn't break through that rock. So the sun would immediately scorch them, and they would just, just, just die. Um, the other kind of uh, soil that is talked about here is among the thorns. and like Basically, it's a bunch of weeds. Um, and so whenever they grew, these weeds grew with them. And uh, at first, again, it looked great. It looked like great soil, and these sprung up really quick. But then all these weeds came up, choked them out, and then they died. And then the, uh, the last one he's talking about is a good soil, which yielded a crop of some 100-fold, some 16, some 30, right? So 10-fold yield of a crop was considered great. So 100-fold obviously would be an amazing yield of a crop. And then he says, that's when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what's great about this parable is Jesus explains it in uh, verses, uh, uh, I put 18 through 23, but it's not. Did I say 18 through 23 before? Because I didn't mean 18 through 23. Oops. Anyway, I actually go to 18 through 23. And then we'll see the parable explained. How's that? And then it says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the, uh, the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom the seed was sown beside the road. So this guy has a hard heart. If you guys haven't noticed, these soils represent people's hearts, right? And the seed is the word of God. So when the word of God falls on these people's hearts... It's really hard, and it doesn't penetrate in. It just stays on the outside. Why? Because these guys have been so uh, in the world, in sin, it's just been trampled on. Their heart is too hard to really uh, let the Word in and so they can understand it. And immediately it just, it just it's taken away. Verse 20, the one who is deceived is sown by the rocky places. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So this one would apply, might apply to the Thessalonians. Why? Because that rock represents the persecution, right? And the afflictions of this world. See, these people sprung up really quick. And we see it today, too. Christians, uh, or people might say that they become a Christian, and then they, it's super encouraging to see them grow, right? They, they're, they're excited to you know, get involved in a lot of different ministries, do a lot of different things. But then, when persecution comes, like people kind of may start making fun of them a little bit, or whatever, they 
they say, you know what, this isn't this isn't for me. I, you know, I, I was excited about this, but now it's getting hard. Um, and I just don't want to. I just don't want to have a part of it anymore. Um, that's these people who who the soil falls in the rocky places. Now, the big question is, were those people saved in the first place? If they fell away, they just completely reject Christianity now because it's getting a little too hard. Were they saved? No, they weren't. They weren't saved. Why? Because they, they withered away. They died. These people look like they they were saved. They may even believe with their heads that, that, that Jesus is God, right? But they, they're not really giving their whole life over to Him. They're not really trusting Him and His sacrifice on the cross for their sins. They only think... The, and believe intellectually that, yeah, Jesus is who He says He is. Now, the next type of soil was... Uh, well, before I go on, the Thessalonians, remember, they were enduring a lot of persecution at this time. So Paul may have been worried that because of all this persecution, maybe their salvation wasn't uh, completely genuine. They would have fallen away because of all this. And he was worried that that uh, was the case, but you know, obviously it wasn't because of uh, Timothy's awesome report later on. Uh, verse 22, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And... So this is the one who the seed falls on the heart, and again they sprout up really quick. It seems like an awesome conversion, right? Um, these people, again, are very excited to to serve God, and 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 very excited to uh, to to get involved in ministries and all these different things. Um, but then the seed, deceitfulness of of wealth. So these are the ones who the world is just far too attractive for them to let go of. Um, maybe they get involved in some kind of a sin. Uh, maybe, maybe, they like, uh, maybe they like to follow after stuff more than following God. Uh, maybe they like to you know, do all this other stuff. Maybe they enjoy you know, sex before marriage. Maybe they enjoy uh, lying too much. Um, they think that that stuff is just life, and so they 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 don't want to put that away, even though that's what we're supposed to do, right? If we're genuinely saved, we're supposed to repent from all that stuff and turn to Christ. So the deceitfulness of this world it all choked out the word, and they fell away, just like the weeds. And then the last one, the one in whom the seed was sown on good soil. This is the man who did three things. And if you've heard me pray for you guys, then I, I, I do use these three things a lot. He heard the word, he understood it, and he bore fruit. So whenever I pray for you guys, I pray that you guys would hear the word, that you would understand it, that it would go deep into your hearts. And that it would bear fruit. That's what these Thessalonians had. These guys heard the word and it was soft and it penetrated deep into their hearts. And then they bore fruit. And we'll talk about that fruit. So, Paul was super excited that the second and the third soils weren't uh, demonstrative of the Thessalonians. So, yeah, Paul, Titus, and, and Timothy, they gave thanks for them. Notice how it says, always making mention of them in their prayers. See, they frequently prayed for their flock. Not just the Thessalonians, but their whole flock. Everyone appointed under them by God, they prayed for all the time. Look at the words he uses. He says always in verse 2 and verse 3, he says constantly. Paul prayed often for their growth, and here... We can see Paul praying and thanksgiving to God for them. We should always be praying with thanksgiving to God. God has given us so much to be thankful for. Hasn't He? 
Hasn't he been giving us so much stuff to be thankful for? See, so many times we, we, we kind of like, like to sit and look at all the bad stuff in our life and think, why is God so mean to me? Why, why don't I have so much nicer things? But when we realize that all we truly deserve is eternal punishment and hell, doesn't it make all the nice things in life seem so much nicer? Do you have a home to go home to go and, and a bed to sleep in every night, food every day? If you know Christ as your personal Savior, that is amazing grace in and of itself, because now you're you're going to spend eternity in heaven with Him. God has given us so much grace. So Paul is thankful for their perseverance, which proves their salvation. And this is uh, shown forth in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God, the Father. So, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Paul loved to combine these, these three things a lot. Faith, hope, and love, right? Uh, we see a lot of that in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He uses these three. Uh, in Colossians 1, 4-5, we see it again. So let's talk about these things. The work of faith. These are, these are things that the Thessalonians were demonstrating. So the work of faith. In their, in their ministry... In the Thessalonians' ministry, they demonstrated that they were willing to put in the work of genuine faith in God. It was this faith that allowed them to persevere under trial. We can, in uh, perseverance under trial, we can look at verse at uh, passages such as James one two through twelve, right? We'll look at that a little bit later. And you can also look at Matthew 14, 22-33, when Jesus walks on the water. So they demonstrated that work, the work of faith. And then he talks about the labor of love. Labor of love. It's, it's kind of strange. It's not very common to hear people talk about love and labor in the same sentence, right? Or in the same phrase. It may seem a little foreign to some people, but the Greek word here used for... Uh, labor is is kapu, and it's from the word kapas, which literally means toil, and it it implies pain or weariness. So that's that's the word that's that's used for labor. And then of love, obviously, you guys know agape. It's a super popular word that is always used. Labor of love. So the Thessalonians put in work of genuine faith and it was motivated by genuine love for God and then for others. So true love means doing what God wants, which means doing what is best for that person. Right? True love means doing what God wants, which is doing what's best for the other person, which is sometimes the hardest and most painful thing to do. So I, I just want you guys to think about that for a second. Because the, the society, this world, likes to distort the meaning of love a lot. When you see your brother or sister in sin, the loving thing to do is to talk to them about in a loving and gentle way. That's the loving thing to do. Love does not mean that I'm going to look past your... Well, yes, look past your sins, but just ignore them. Love doesn't ignore sins in people's lives. And pretend that they're not there. True love says, Yeah, you have these sins, but I'm going to love you and I'm going to help you get through them because I want you to have a good relationship with Christ and a thriving relationship with Christ. And the only way to do that is to... Repent of the sin and, and turn from it and turn to Christ. A lot of people get real frustrated when you point out their sin, right? And they, they, they tend to say, yeah, but I, I mean, don't you have sin? I've seen you do this. I've seen you do that. 
But the problem with that is they're excusing their sin. They're, they're trying to say, well, because you have sin, you can't, you can't say anything about me. Like, yeah, I have sin too. But you need to be focusing on yourself right now. So when you guys have a friend lovingly come to you pointing out sin, remember that it's out of love, right? It's not because they... Well, well, it depends on the situation. But even if it is out of malice, even if they are pointing out the sin because of, you know, some kind of devious motivation or whatever, then uh, still look at yourself. You know, look, look at your own heart. See what needs to be changed. So these Thessalonians... Uh, were showing uh, genuine love. They were, they were doing their work because they love other people. So do you work? Do you do your work because you love other people, or is it because you love their opinion of you, and you, you want their opinion to be good of you? Which basically means that you're not you're not doing your work for other people. You're doing your work for yourself, so that other people can have a good opinion of you. See, these, these Thessalonians show that their love was placed where it should be, which is Christ first. Then, and only then, were they able to genuinely love others the way they should. Only when you love Christ the way you should, and, his, um, and He is in the proper place in your heart, only then will you be able to love other people. Otherwise, all of our relationships are all about us. Ultimately, what can I get out of it? So, these Thessalonians showed that their love was genuine for other people, even when it was hard and toilsome and wearisome for them. For them. The next is uh, the steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God the Father. You see how it says that? The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God the Father. Amid their persecution, the one thing that helped them remain was the hope that they had. The hope that Jesus would once again come back and they would enjoy eternal heaven forever, eternal life forever. So what a wonderful hope is that? I say with an exclamation point at the end. It sounded like a question, but what a wonderful hope. Jesus is alive currently. When He rose again, He remained alive, and He's alive right now. And He is currently interceding for us to God, the Father. He is the source of all of our hope. That's, that's what they demonstrated. They, genu- they demonstrated genuine faith, genuine love, genuine hope in Jesus Christ in the midst of all the persecution that they were going through. So why does Paul give thanks to God for all of this? It seems like he should be commending these people, right? But then we see we see we give thanks to God always for all of you. We see that answer in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, so the reason their salvation was steadfast and immovable was because God chose them for salvation before the foundations of the world. So this is a hot topic. This is a doctrine of election. And this is a hot topic. A lot of people, a lot of people don't like this, 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 this doctrine. This is the, the most contested doctrine, I think. Or at least one of them. And I'm going to say a few things and just make sure you guys like understand that I, I love you. And if you guys disagree with me, then we can lovingly, lovingly disagree. But I'm going to be pretty dogmatic in the next uh, few minutes about this. There are many places in God's Word that refer to God's people as the elect. Some of those are Romans 8.33... Colossians 3.12 2 Timothy 2.10 1 
In Titus 1, 1. And it is clear from God's Word that God initiates salvation, not man. God is the initiator of salvation. We can see in John 1, 13, Acts 13, 46-48, Romans 9, 15-16, basically all of Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 30, Colossians 1, 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 Peter 1, 1. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a, an example list. So at first, at first this may not seem very fair. After all, what about those who never hear about God? Don't they at least deserve a chance? So if God chooses everybody before the foundations of the world to be saved, what about all those people who never, never hear the gospel? What about all those people who never get a chance to hear it? This question comes from a misunderstanding of true reality, however. The simple truth is that no one who has ever existed has ever deserved a chance to hear the gospel. From those in the deepest, darkest jungles to those who are a businessman in a suit in New York City has never deserved a chance to hear the gospel. The sin of man is so incredibly heinous to God and evil that the best that man deserves is eternal punishment in hell for all of eternity. Separated from God. Yet, God in His graciousness has given this opportunity to hear the gospel and the wonderful news that Jesus came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, and yet died at the end of it on the cross. And He took that punishment onto Himself. So, And then He rose again three days later to show that He had the authority to do that. And He did all that so that we would not have to suffer for our sins for all of eternity. What a tremendous grace is that. Even if He saved one person out of all history of mankind, even if He saved one person, that would be tremendous grace. But yet, how many people has He saved throughout history? I don't even, I can't even count. But you might say, when I was saved, I remember making a, a decision in my head uh, to turn from my sins and to follow Christ. I remember making a decision. So yes, you do have a will. Yes, that will does work into God's will in saving you. I mean, we can even see this in verse 6 of First uh, Thessalonians 1, where it says, You also became imitators of us, of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That kind of uh, connotes a, a decision for them to turn to, to God, right? They made a decision to do that. And then we can also see it in verse 9 when we get there. And there's many other verses in the Bible that talk about us having a decision that we have to make. Man does have the responsibility of responding to the sovereign prompting of the Holy Spirit in salvation. This is getting really deep, guys, but this is theology. This is super important. This decision shows forth in a few different ways. In repentance, in faith. Bottom line, you don't make the choice you do not make the choice to follow Christ or not. But we can't, uh, we cannot claim any congratulations. And oh, I said that wrong. We do make a choice. We do make a choice to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. But we cannot claim any congratulations for making the right choice. Why? 
Because even our love for God, and we can see this in Romans, even our love for God is given to us. We do not love God on our own. We cannot love God on our own. We can see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot brag about our salvation. Why? Because we had no part of it. That's why in the Beatitudes, when he's talking about uh, poor in spirit, the word poor is literally impoverished or nothing. We have nothing. We bring nothing to the table in our salvation. So if you guys want to talk about this a little more afterwards, we can. Uh, and I'd be happy to. And I have some cool articles I can show you. Uh, I think that our salvation, and with regards to our salvation, uh, free will, God's, God's sovereignty, practically speaking, we have to make that decision. We have to make that choice. But ultimately, this is God's sovereign work in our lives. And we have, to, we have to embrace that, guys. If we don't completely praise God alone for our salvation, if we have any part of it, in it, part of it at all, then we're not giving God the glory that He deserves and the praise that He deserves. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Notice Paul says, Our gospel. The gospel is for everyone to believe. So, it seems a little contradictory, right? The same... In light of what I just said before, that God chose the elect before the foundations of the world. That the gospel, the gospel is for all sinners to believe. It's, it's there. Now, those who don't believe it are held accountable for their sins. That's another thing. That's another, uh, another thing that people like to bring up uh, in... Um, words uh, just a second um, that's another thing that people like to bring up when talking about the doctrine of election is how, how come how can people be responsible for not choosing God if God chose them well that, that's when our, our will does come into play like we do have a will we do have a choice to make we are held responsible for that choice. And you guys are like, like, I can't understand this. This is, this is crazy. What's your question? I have to leave. Oh, okay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. I will come this week. Okay. Uh, this, is on, this is on YouTube in case you want to. <laughs> or at least it will be. I'm probably going to cut that part out. But. So, I could talk about this for hours, yes. I actually spent multiple classes where we talked about this for the entire semester. I that. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult topic. So, basically, both of them, we, just, we have to accept both of these truths by faith. We have a choice to make. Because that's clear in Scripture too. We do have a choice to make. And I'm not trying to ignore all those. And God chooses us for salvation. Now, how these both go together, you got me. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. I haven't read it in a little bit. But I have a book over there I'm reading. Um, how he thinks that they go together. So I'm interested to see how he, how he puts them together. Anyway, that's probably one of the things we're going to be talking about in heaven for all of eternity, though. How do these things go together? So, 
It did not come in word only, right? Back in verse 5. But it came in with the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. Paul knew that even though he spoke the words, which is important, the message he spoke was not from him, but it was from God. Every message has to start in words, right? Every message has to come in words. Romans 10, 10, 13-15 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him who have they not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as, as, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So going and preaching is necessary. Right? A lot of people say, you know, have you heard the phrase, uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words? Well, that's not, it's not a good phrase. <laughs> preach the gospel, if necessary, use words? Basically, basically, they're saying, preach the gospel with your life. And that's fine. You know, we should be uh, being examples of, you know, good Christians. And we should be preaching the gospel with, with how we live our life. But yeah, it is necessary that we use words. People aren't going to be saved by watching you do good stuff. People are going to be saved when they hear the good news of Jesus Christ and His Word. But anyway, that's a side note, sort of. In order for these things to do any good at all, however, it also had to come with the power of the Holy Spirit working in it. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the effects of the cross to the sinner. We talk about roles of the Trinity, right? And while we can't separate the Trinity at all, they're one, one, one God. The whole, the God, the Son, made a way for salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies that to the believer. So, therefore, the message has to be backed with the Holy Spirit so He can work in people's hearts and soften up that soil, that hard soil in their hearts. Take away those rocks and those weeds. The Holy Spirit has to do all that. And that's why I pray for you guys so much. To understand God's Word. To believe it and to bear fruit. Because I know that you guys can't do it on your own. And just me sitting up here talking to you guys is not going to accomplish anything. Unless the Holy Spirit works through His Word and in your guys' hearts. And that's true for anybody. Why? Because man is so incredibly morally depraved. Man cannot understand God's Word on his own. He needs the power of the Holy Spirit to help him with that. That's a whole other theological topic that we can go into. So the Holy Spirit brought full conviction of their sins. They had to realize how bad off they were before they could come to a point in which they would accept God's grace. If you guys don't realize how bad off you are before salvation, you're not going to understand why we need God's grace in our lives. If you're not super bad, if you're not completely morally depraved, God's grace is not all that necessary in our lives. You have to understand how bad off you are in order to fully accept the grace of God. Only the Holy Spirit can truly convict of sin. Therefore, only by the power of the Holy Spirit can a person be brought to a point when they realize that they need somebody to save them. And that somebody being Jesus Christ. The exemplary life of Paul proved that the message he was bringing was true. That's, that's what he's talking about at the end of the verse. It said... 
just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy lived an exemplary life. And this is the perfect transition to the next part. So what was this one? You guys wrote it down, right? Salvation. So the next one is... Can anybody guess? Huh? No, example. I don't know. That was kind of hard for me to have to guess. But, so Paul's thankful for first their salvation he talks about, and next he's, he's super thankful about their example. We see that starting in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So, in verse 6, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy led exemplary lives. So Paul is saying that he's, he's encouraged and thankful that they became imitators of him and of them. A lot of people will say, don't follow my example, follow God's example. Have you guys ever heard that? I mean, it's really popular among like youth pastors and things like that to say, don't follow, don't follow me, don't follow my example. I'm just a sinner. Follow Christ. At first this seems to sound humble, but it is incredibly hypocritical at its core. Paul is saying here that they followed his example. And in other places we can see Paul telling and uh, giving a command to follow his example. And we can cross-reference Philippians 3.17 for that. This is not because Paul was self-righteous. He, he didn't think that he was righteous on his own. But he was a follower of Christ. He was a follower of God. So he was an example of what a follower of Christ should be. So no more should we be saying, don't follow my example, I'm just a sinner. I will never tell you guys that. Instead, we should be saying, follow me as I follow Christ. If we tell people to follow our example, however, we need to be the kind of people whose example is worthy to be followed. Am I right? I'm not going to stand up here and tell you guys to follow my example if I'm going out and getting drunk on Friday nights and partying it up. Or if, I'm, or if I struggle with bad language and I'm over here cussing up a storm, I'm not going to tell you guys to follow my example. I want you guys to follow my example, and even if I do mess up, which is inevitable because I am a sinner, then I hope you guys follow in my example as I repent of that sin and turn from it and apologize and seek to reconcile with whoever that sin hurt. That's what it means to be an exemplary Christian. And then we see, he says, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Tribulation literally just means uh, affliction. Well, it's also translated affliction. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense sometimes to pair the words tribulation and joy, though, does it? We don't see that a whole lot. We can see in James 2, though, or excuse me, James 1, 2 through 12, Paul talks about, uh, excuse me, James, James talks about considering it all joy. Let me go there and we can read that. In James 1, starting in verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let, us, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And he goes on. So consider it all joy when we encounter those various trials. Why? 
Because it's testing. And it's producing what? Endurance. It's testing patient, uh, pr- producing patience in them and endurance and steadfastness. So that, and when he's talking about being perfect and complete, he's talking about that, that sanctification, right? That process of sanctification. And he goes on. I mean, you could preach a whole series or whatever on that. So I'm not going to stay there for a long time. But joy in the midst of intense persecution is an evidence of salvation. Instead of the, the man with the rocky soil in his heart who endured the persecution but then fell away because it was too hard, it was too difficult. So how does it make sense to be so joyful in the midst of so much pain and suffering? We can see Paul bleeding joy as he writes books like the like Philippians, in which he's in, in prison. If you guys uh, have heard me talk about prison before, it's it's a tiny little room, probably maybe the size of between that wall and this podium, probably a little smaller. Uh, and then it's like a square like that, and they just pack people down in there. And it's it's underground. It's dark. They don't really let any light in there. There's no windows. Uh, there's no bathroom, so people just kind of go on the, wherever they're at. And it's very unsanitary, rats everywhere. That's prison back in those days. Yeah, Paul sounds super joyful as he writes Philippians. He actually wrote four books in there called the Prison Epistles. But if you read Philippians as just an example, you'll see how he's so excited about so many different things in the midst of all of that persecution. Why? Because that persecution led to a lot of awesome things. It led to more boldness in the, in the believers around there. And he, he was able to share the gospel with the prison guards there. That's genuine. That comes from true faith, right? To see all the good that comes or that even might come from this persecution. Even if it's simply in sharing and the, the suffering that, that Jesus went through. At least a small part of it. What an amazing privilege is that? To suffer for Christ. To suffer for the Word of God. That's an amazing privilege, guys. We don't have to deal with that a whole lot here in the United States. The most we're going to get is probably getting made fun of. Or maybe we won't be able to have certain privileges that other people might have. Um, On rare occasions will people get jailed for being a Christian. It has happened. It happened to John MacArthur. He talks about it. He has, he has went to prison for spe- preaching the gospel before. Or for jail for like a night. Um, other places, it's a whole lot worse. Obviously, in the Middle East, you get beheaded for stuff like that. So, here in the United States, we're, uh, we're, we're pretty spoiled with as far as sharing the gospel. You can just walk up to anybody in the street corner, share the gospel dogmatically with them, without any fear, right, of, uh, of persecution. So we don't really understand this super well. But try and put you guys in these uh, shoes. And we might have to endure a time in the future where we, we, we get more, more and more and more persecution for Christ. That's really going to determine who are true believers in the church. I think the church is going to shrink, but I don't think the true church will shrink. I think those who call themselves the church will just go away. They're like the ones whose hearts had the rock. And they'll just wither away, and they'll go and do the worldly stuff. The true church, true church, will remain. Verse 7, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, See, Paul followed Christ. The Thessalonians followed their example, Paul's example. And in so doing, they became an example for other people to follow. They were model believers. And this is what, they, uh, what we need to strive to be. We need to be, strive to be examples for others to follow. Right? 
This, that's, that's leadership, guys. That's godly leadership. See, leadership is all about influence. And nothing influences people more effectively or efficiently than example. Therefore, the foundation of godly leadership is being a godly example to follow. Verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Wherever they went, they preached the gospel. It was part of who they were. It was just part of who they were. They preached the gospel everywhere they went. They were not afraid of what the people might think or might do. They just did it because it is what they were called to do. It was God's will for them. And we, we have that same call uh, to preach the gospel to everybody. Everybody in, in, that we, we come across, right? We often get scared in sharing the gospel, though, don't we? But the Thessalonians faced beatings and death. What's the worst that we could face? Usually it's just being made fun of. Now, the reason we don't share is because we're thinking about ourselves more than we're thinking about God. And you're thinking about yourself more than you're thinking about others. You've made what are called idols in your heart. And you worship them. You leaving, Sammy? Yeah. Okay. See you later. Glad you can make it. Uh, you have made what are called idols in your hearts and you worship them more than you worship above God and these idols that are keeping you from, from uh, sharing with others could be the esteem of others you could worship what other people think about you and that's called the fear of man right? fearing man above God you might fear, I mean, you might uh, worship peace in your hearts. Uh, or you might worship comfort. See, I, I'm a very non-confrontational kind of a person. Like, I will avoid confrontation at all costs. I hate drama, confrontation, arguing. I hate all of it. Uh, in a lot of cases, that's good. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to be at peace, as far as it's up to us, we're supposed to be at peace with one another. But in certain situations, it can be an idol in my heart to have peace when confrontation is necessary. Right? For instance, if somebody is caught in a sin, like I, I, as a believer, need to help that person out of it. But sometimes I like my peace and my comfort my non-confrontation a little too much and that keeps me from uh, helping that person and the same thing with evangelism sometimes I get I feel like I, I don't want to really argue with this person this person probably going to not agree with me uh, but those are idols right those are idols in our hearts that we need to overcome so something becomes an idol in our hearts when we either do something that we shouldn't do or don't do something that we should do in order to get it. So I'll say that again. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Something becomes an idol in our hearts when we either do something we shouldn't do to get it, or when we don't do something we should do in order to get it. Both of which is sin. So foundationally, an idol is something that we sin in order to get. That's a good test to see if something has become an idol in your heart. If you're sinning in order to get it, if you're sinning in order to achieve peace in your life, then it's an idol in your heart. Why? Because you put that above God. So, and we know something is an idol when it gets in the way of doing what God has commanded us to do. And so that, that actually applies more to the next verse, in verse 9. Uh, which leads us into our last and final part here, which is thanksgiving for their report, for the report. 
That's verses 9 through 10. So see in verse 9, he says, uh, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So how they turned from idols to serve a living and true God. They not only put away the blatant idolatry of the time, you know, like the little statues and everything, like they had, they had that at this time. That's what most people think about when we think about idolatry, right? Those little statues that people worship. Little idols. They not only, not only put away that, but they also put away the less blatant idolatry in their hearts. That's the idol- idolatry that's so rampant today. So they put away that idolatry and they served the living and true God. The crazy thing about idolatry is that you cannot put off idolatry without putting something else on. Many, many times, sadly, people put off one form of idolatry. Say it's alcohol, so they worship that comfort, or they worship that, uh, that peace, and they have such an inner struggle maybe that, that they're drowning it out with the alcohol, and they're getting drunk. That's worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. So, sadly, a lot of people put off one form of idolatry and put on another form of idolatry. Uh, you know, they might put off alcoholism, but then they'll turn on to something else, like pornography or whatever kind of sin that you can think of. Why? Because we have to worship something in our hearts. People have to worship something. Even if, even if people don't want to worship anything because they're atheists and they think that they are above that kind of thing, People have to worship something. The Thessalonians put on Jesus Christ. So when you put off a sin, when you put off whatever, put on Christ. That's what we talked about when we were in Colossians chapter 3, right? Um, They put off all those sins, the sexual immorality, all that stuff. They put off all of that. And then they put on... Christ. They put on those, uh, those other attributes that we saw, which were basically attributes of Christ. They put off, but they put on Christ. So the Thessalonians put on Christ. They turned away from those idols that, don't, that didn't deliver anything at all. And they turned to become willing slaves of God. And in verse 10 we see... Uh, It says, And and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So after turning to God from their idols, they had the joy of looking forward to Christ. This is a kind of a common recurring theme in 1 Thessalonians. This is a joy of, of the hope that all believers share in common. If all of us know Christ in this room, all of us can share it in this Tremendous hope that Jesus will come back, come back one day. This is amazing peace and comfort because Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead, and He will come back someday. And if you know Him, you will be rescued. Look at what it says in verse ten: We will be rescued from that wrath to come. And there will be so much wrath on that day, so much punishment. For so many people, that should that hope, I hope motivates you in two different ways. I hope it motivates you to look at your own heart, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. Truly pray that the Holy Spirit would show you if you're not, if you're trusting in something else. And the second thing I hope that that motivates you towards is evangelism sharing your faith with with other people, knowing that there are so many people who are going to have to suffer under that wrath. So, will you escape that wrath, or will you partake in that wrath? And how many people do you know are going to partake in that wrath? And what are you doing about it currently? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this night that we are able to look into your word and learn so much, God. 
We're just praying, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work through it, would work through what I said, God, would work in everybody's hearts in this room so that we would hear it and we would believe it and we would bear fruit, God, for you as willing slaves of you. God, I just pray that you would uh, change our hearts, change our lives, God, help us to be more devoted to loving you and serving you than we were yesterday. God, I, I just thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for applying that to us, Holy Spirit, and for leading us through that process of sanctification every single day. Just pray that you would help us remain, help everyone in here to remain, God, with you. For those who are not here, I pray that you would uh, help them to know you and help them uh, to rely on you more. God, please bless the, uh, the, the time here that we spent looking into your word. We pray that you would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. I really hope this message was helpful, and I also hope that you'll share this podcast with others who either attended or visited the youth group. And please feel free to share these messages with others as well if you uh, think of anybody else who would benefit. And above all, please take time to remember to trust in God today. He will not let you down.